0: Picture it, plan for it, fight for it, finish it. And this will make more sense. Some of us skip phases and get them out of order, and this is why we have disaster in our life. Have you ever started to build something without having a picture of what the finished product looked like? How do you do do that? Some people just love that. Well, I don't really know what I'm building. I'm just going to get the modeling clay out and just start creating, and we'll see where this goes. Now, some of you are wired that way. I'm I'm convinced that's not necessarily a dysfunction, but it's not the way that I work. I'm the guy that wants to know what I'm building, you know, and I regularly refer back to what the finished picture is supposed to look like so I can figure if I'm building properly. But we we picture it. We plan for it. We fight for it. We finish it. First, you picture it. When you picture something, we're really talking about is vision and vocabulary. What does it look like and how do we describe it? Then you plan for it. And when you plan for it, what we're really talking about is figuring, funding, and faith. And then sometimes you have to fight for it. And when we fight for our vision, what we're really talking about is obstacles, opposition, and opportunities. And then finally, you finish it. Ultimately, once you've pictured, and you've planned, and you've fought, and you've budgeted, and you've worked, you finish it finishers remind us why we keep fighting and keep us motivated until we're finished now if we carefully perfectly and faithfully honor this process in the order that god intends then we'll live out our dreams if however you get these things out of order or you skip steps you will live out your nightmares if you follow this through picture it plan it fight for it finish it you'll live out god's best dreams for you if you skip steps if you get them out of order if you skip right to fighting first without a plan if you try to build something without a picture of what it's going to look like, you live out your nightmares. Nehemiah is a blueprint for us of how you take something, a God-inspired thought or a dream, and you take it from imagination to finished product. Now, I want to believe here this morning that some of you have already spent time making some New Year's resolutions. Any of you done that? Made some New Year's rev- resolutions? Awesome. I want to see you make those more than just things that are written in pencil at the beginning of the year. I want to actually have you see those things come to pass. Most of us forget about them two weeks into January. So how do we actually take something that might be an idea the whole way through the finished product? Well, Nehemiah gives us a blueprint for that. So why study Nehemiah? Here's the reason why. Because it is a story of how a nation who turned their backs on God returned to him once again. That's what Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah is a story of one man who who wasn't even living in Israel at the time had a vision for how to bring these people who had walked away from God back in a relationship. At the core of it, and I want you to see this, they rebuilt. They didn't just build, they rebuilt. You understand there's a difference between building and rebuilding? You get that? There's a difference between building something and building it again. What the church needs What Echo needs, what Perry Hall needs, is not some new, cutting-edge, innovative Christianity, but one that returns to what it was supposed to be in the first place. We need to be rebuilt. What we're finding, if you study this across the nation, I've been doing this recently, cutting-edge Christianity is old-school Christianity now. Some of the fastest-growing churches in the nation are not those that are surface deep on Sunday morning and are trying to entertain you and be funny and have all the craziest tech going on. They're churches that come together. One of the fastest growing churches, and you can go right down to Washington, D.C., Mark Batterson's church. This church is growing and growing and growing and growing. They've got, I don't know how many campuses now, six, seven, eight, nine campuses all over the city. And you walk in on Sunday morning, you know what it is? It's solid worship. It's biblical teaching. And it's prayer. And people are coming by the hundreds and thousands and having their lives changed. Somewhere along the way, we got cute with church in America. And we have lost our way. I don't know that we need to build. We need to rebuild. And that's what Nehemiah discovered. He didn't go in and build a brand new wall. He repaired the wall that used to work that had gotten broken down. He went back and he repaired it. Some of the fastest growing churches in America, in terms of seeing new people saved, sing older, simpler worship songs, preach solid biblical messages rather than shallow motivational messages, and place a high emphasis on personal discipleship. They're less concerned with entertaining you, they're less concerned with being sexy, they're most concerned with challenging you to know God better. So I ask again why study Nehemiah? Because this man understood what went wrong for Judah and what what caused a once vibrant nation who thrived under the blessings of God to be burned to the ground by a conquering empire, he understood that it wasn't a political problem. He understood it wasn't an economic problem that caused God's people to be dashed and their city to be destroyed. He understood it wasn't a military problem, it was a spiritual problem. Our problem is not a governmental, economic, moral problem. Military, gay, straight, feminist, Hollywood, white, black, or gray problem. Our problem is a deeply spiritual problem that begins right here in the heart of the church. It's time for us to rebuild that wall. Now, we can't rebuild the wall for America. That's not what I'm responsible for. That's not what we're responsible for. We're right here in Perry Hall. We are right here in the middle of where God wants to do something. And it's time for us to rebuild whatever that wall Looks like for us. So well, let me define that for you. We need to return to some things rather than, you know, people say, "Well, Pastor, what's the new thing that we're going to do?" I don't know if we need to do anything new. Maybe we need to return to things we should have been doing that we're not doing. And in that way, I, I walk, I walk a little bit alone among my peers. Everybody's out trying to find the new cutting edge. What's the new? What's the new tool? What's the new trick we can do in ministry to get churches to grow faster? Well, I I'm all about having those conversations, but you know that, that assumes we're doing the stuff we should be doing. Maybe the wheel's not broken. Maybe we need to go back and say, listen, these are the things the church was always supposed to be about and we're not doing them anymore. We need to, re- in my opinion, we need to return to actively participating. We need to return to actively participating in the life of the church. We start at 10 o'clock on Sundays. I told you I was going to come back here. I talked to, I have a, we have a coach that I work with in, in ministry, and, I, and I'll try and get through this quickly, but I have to say this this morning. I realize I'm kind of preaching to the choir. We don't have a choir, but I'm preaching to people that probably already know this already. And I asked him, he said, you know what? He said, well, what questions do you have about echo? And I asked him a lot of different questions, and I said, well, and my coach, just to give you a context, he's pastor of one of the five largest assemblies of God churches in the country, okay? There's like nine ten thousand 10,000 people that are in this guy's church on 10 different campuses. And I said, well, I said, punctuality and people coming to church on time, is that something that I can change? Is that a national problem? Um, Is it something I should be concerned about? He said, well, does it bother you? I said, yeah, it bothers me. He said, why? I said, because I guess just to me, it just shows that we don't think that this is important enough to get here on time. He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, I'll tell you, I don't have a solution to that. He said, I'm seeing that all over the country. And here's what he said. He said, it's no longer a value in our culture. He said, we're swimming upstream. He said, punctuality is no longer a value in our culture. And essentially what he said to me was, maybe I ought not to be that concerned about it. I should just be thankful that people come to church, whether or not they come to church on time. Because our culture as a whole is saying punctuality is less of a value than it used to be. And I think that's fair. I think our culture as a whole is devaluing punctuality a little bit. But when in the world was the culture supposed to tell me as a Christian how I'm supposed to live? When does the culture tell the church, this is how you should follow Jesus. I'm not supposed to be influenced by my culture. I'm supposed to be influencing my culture for Christ. But yet yeah, that's what I hear. I'm not interested in being uh, you know, changed by the culture. I want to be a change agent in the culture. That's what we're supposed to be. I don't have to beg and plead, but you know what, church starts at a certain time. If this is going to become a value, do we have to have this taken away from us? Before that we'll start fighting for it. It's not that far away. It's not that far away. In fact in many of your lifetimes. You'll have to watch the fight. For us to be able to have church in a public place on Sunday. You'll watch it. You watch it. Look at Canada. I won't even go there. But look at Canada to our north. And I don't know how familiar you are with what's happened. Even there, there's certain things that a pastor cannot preach on Sunday morning in Canada. Or they go to jail. You know why? Because the church got comfortable. Let the wall break down. things that i see what are the other things we do to rebuild the ball we need to return to the classic disciplines of our faith we need to return to some things this means a commitment to the study of the bible the memorization of scripture prayer fasting generosity volunteerism kindness and love for others we need to return to living lives that are identified by holiness and godly living our priorities need a radical revisiting of the holy spirit we have so many idols and things that we follow after You know, other than this particular building, and I've investigated, we looked at six other possible venues for where Echo could meet on a Sunday morning, and they're all taken up by recreation sports on a Sunday morning. Every other school, Honeygo Park, every other place that we could meet, because there's some Sundays this next year where this space is taken up by recreational activities for kids. And all over town on Sunday mornings, Places are getting filled up with who? With young families with kids to put them in activities, soccer, hockey. Uh, uh, what was the other one that I just heard about? Uh, soccer, hockey, ballet, uh, wrestling. Yeah, there's all kinds of all kinds of activities going on for families. The Perry Hall Rec Council has almost every single school except this one. Then this room booked straight through on Sunday. I, you know, as as Linda and I were looking all the different places, one after another, said, "We'd love to have you." But from 8 o'clock on Sunday morning to 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, we're packed full of the families in this community who are bringing their kids out to be involved in recreational sports. Recreational sports is not the problem and it's not the enemy. The rec council is not the enemy. You might think that they are. They're not. All they're doing is trying to meet the needs of a culture that says we don't value worshiping together as a church on Sunday anymore, but I do want to be with my kids and I'll put them in the idol of organized sports pastor my kids involved in sports you're saying it's an idol to you maybe it is or it isn't It all depends on the all, all depends on the value you place on it really that's what an idol is anything you put in a place that god wants so it could be anything you could put anything there. you can put good things there you can put benign things there the reality is we are in a culture we are right positioned in a culture that says we don't value a worship experience for our family on a sunday morning that's what's going on here. That's why all these other venues are being filled up. They're not being filled up by, they're being filled up by people who are looking to those things to provide for them what God can. Now, I realize I might be preaching to the choir this morning, but parents, you're going to have to make this decision for your own family. What's most important? What's most important for your kids? To be, to fill every nook and cranny of their time with events and activities and keep pushing God farther and farther and farther down the list and hoping that in that time that you're making up for somehow, they're going to make it to adulthood and have a relationship with Jesus that lasts. I'm going to have to walk through those decisions myself when I raise my son. But the reality of the, the, reality of the matter is we are not living in a culture that's all that, all that open to the idea of coming to a worship service on a Sunday morning anymore. And I can't do anything about the culture. It has to start right here. We are supposed to be the change agent for the culture. Not the, not the group that gets changed by our culture. And so at some point we have to build that wall back up and say, you know what, regardless of what's going on in our culture, we are not going to compromise in the fact that I personally need to have a vibrant Growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That He is my priority in my life. And there are certain times and places in my life that are going to be sacred and left alone for God and God only because I want to grow spiritually. Rather than trying to fill Him into the cracks and the empty space, I've filled everything else up and then God gets the leftovers at the end of the day. We need a return to a passionate personal relationship with Jesus Christ that dictates and drives my life rather than fitting God in where there's gaps and and i can't preach to the masses this is the group that i get to talk to this morning and it has to start here because when the world looks at the church do they see do they see anything different about you and me than they see about themselves when they look themselves in the mirror or do we just feel better about ourselves because we went to church on sunday is there anything different in your life anything that distinguishes you from the person that doesn't have a relationship with jesus is there any more joy is there any more peace is there a higher standard of moral living is there a healthier family life or are you and i just as jacked up and messed up as everybody else and we just think we're better because we knock out 60 minutes to come to church on sunday if we can get here this is on you and me My kid will come up in this. Your kids, your grandkids are going to come up in this. What kind of community of faith are we building for our kids? It's not someone else's problem. It's right here. It's right here. Right here. Well, pastor, if we just incentivized, if we just gave... it I've read all kinds of things. I'm not incentivizing church. God is my incentive. And if that's not enough... Handing out free Coke or free can, I'm not going to cheapen him for that. I'm not going to cheapen my God for that. What would happen if at 9.30, 9.45, this place started to fill up with people who were just seeking God's face because he wanted to be here. Because you needed to hear from him. Because you needed his wisdom. You needed his presence. You wanted to be with him so bad that you just rearranged Sunday morning, got here a few minutes. What would happen? What would happen in this community if we started to be transformed into the type of, of followers of Christ that we read about in Scripture who scoped and changed history? What would happen? Everybody wants to hear, well, pastor, are we going to build a building? Are we going to, you know, are we going to rent a bigger space? Are we going to, you know, are we going to have this or that? That's all important and well and good, but, you know, I don't want to inhabit it with dead faith. What's the point? So I can feel good about me. I accomplished a few things. People can say, you're a great leader. And look at Echo. Look what they did. Hogwash. That means nothing in the light of eternity. I'll tell you this much, though. You get serious about prioritizing God in your life. There's not a building in this county big enough to hold what God would do. It's all a matter of your perspective. So here's what Nehemiah says to us. We'll rock it towards the finish line here nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 early in the following spring in the month of nisan during the 20th year of king artaxerxes reign. i've worked on that word all week and it still got me king artaxerxes's reign it's a tough one. i was serving the king his wine i had never before appeared sad in his presence so the king asked me why are you looking so sad you don't look sick to me you must be deeply troubled then i was terrified But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And we're going to stop there this week. Can I encourage you in this month of prayer and fasting, these 21 days, if you don't have a regular habit of reading the Bible, can I encourage you to start in Nehemiah this month? Start in chapter 1, read a few verses at a time. This week and next week will be in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. It's not that much that you couldn't read it multiple times over, but start there. It's really easy to understand story and narrative. It's really exciting, lots of drama, lots of intrigue. Really good read. Um, Four things you need to know about Nehemiah. There's more than that, but let me give you four things real quick. The guy who's writing the main character of this story. Let me give you four things real quick that you need to know. It's not in your notes. Let me just give it to you real quick. Number one, he was a a Jew. He who worshipped the one true God. Now, this story does not take place initially in Judah. It takes place in what is present day Iran. He was a Jew who worshipped God. He was not a Persian by birth. It takes place in Persia. He was a Jew whose family was likely taken captive by the Babylonians and exiled from Judah during, following the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. Let me explain real quick. So like 1040 B.C., you have Israel as one nation, and they lived for 120 years as a united nation. First under the reign of King Saul, then after King Saul came King David, and after King David came David's son Solomon. So for 120 years, they were one united nation, all of Israel. However, after that 120 years, the nation split into two nations. You had Israel in the north and you had Judah in the south, the capital city of Judah being Jerusalem, okay? So you had, you had a, a split between those two nations. And what happened during that time is Israel turned their back on God. And they stopped worshiping God. They let everything else kind of creep in. Some of it happened slowly. Over time, but they stopped worshiping God and time after time after time, they had opportunity to get their lives right. To come back to God and put Him at the top again. Not so much unlike our own history as a nation. But ultimately, they just ignored God and they were complacent. And so God took His hand off of protecting them and allowed them to be conquered by the Babylonians. So um, you you, you have this kind of... (laughs) really destructive kind of dark period of israel's history during this this time um, they faced complete destruction of their possessions their traditions and even their temple was completely destroyed and burned to the ground they had sinned and god judged them that's in the old testament first and second kings first and second chronicles along with most of the prophets so 586 bc 586 years before christ comes into the world the babylonian empire under the leadership of anybody remember that guy's name capital n nebuchadnezzar remember that guy Under his leadership, they destroy Jerusalem, they burn the temple, and they carry off most of the people to Babylon. Now, Babylon is not in present-day Iran. Babylon is Iraq. So they carry off most of the people to Iraq, and they live there in captivity. So 47 years after they're uh, in Iraq in captivity, the Babylonian Empire itself gets conquered. This time they get conquered by the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's established under the leadership of Cyrus. God, however, all along had always chosen to one day rebuild Israel. But it wasn't happening with Nebuchadnezzar. So Emperor Cyrus, in his first year of ruling the Persian Empire, which is, so they moved their headquarters from what is present-day Iraq to present-day Iran, 150 miles east of the Tigris River is where we're talking about here. This is where, this is where Nehemiah is at the beginning of the story. And what happens here during this time under under the Medo-Persian Empire is the first one of the first things that King Cyrus does is he issues a decree that the people who were Jewish, that's not only their religion, that's their ethnicity, people who were Jewish by birth, who had been in captivity for 70 years, would be allowed to return to Israel and start building back their nation. Now, in the meantime, I can't get into all this today, but in the meantime, Israel is... is just, you know, there's three, different kind of king, there's three different kind of conquering armies that were kind of in control of Israel at the time. And the few people that stayed behind that didn't get exiled were just living in intimidation and fear and shot and being abused all the time. It was not a good situation over in Israel. But at the time that our story takes place, um, a decree was issued and they allowed... They, he said, you know, people can go back to Israel. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, we find out this dude, Nehemiah, was living in Persia, which is present-day Iran... He had a really important job. Anybody know what his job was? He was the cupbearer to the king. Now, that was an important job because if you were the guy who was the cupbearer, that meant the king really, really, really trusted you because back in those days, you didn't know if someone was going to try and poison you. So he was responsible for, for the king's cup. And anything that the king drank came only from the cup that Nehemiah would present to him. So the trust between the king and Nehemiah had to be huge. And how amazing is it that Nehemiah, the Jew, not, the, not, not the, the Medo-Persian guy, not an Iranian, not an Iraqi, but a Jew is given that level of trust with a conquering king. The king trusts Nehemiah to supply for him that cup. And in fact, you know, there's other historic examples of they would actually, sometimes if the king was unsure about whether or not someone had poisoned his drink, the cupbearer would taste it first. So if the cupbearer fell down dead, the king knew not to drink it. So Nehemiah had earned great loyalty he had earned the ear and the confidence of a man of, of great influence. So that's kind of where the story takes, takes place. There's a lot more here, but because of time, I'll, you know we can pick some of that up. There was actually two, when, at the time when King Cyrus, here's what you need to know. At the time when King Cyrus actually gave permission, he said, listen, if you're living here in captivity and you are a Jew by birth and you want to return to your homeland, you're free to go. There were actually three kind of waves of people that went back over time. The first was Zerubbabel went back first and he rebuilt the temple. Ezra led the second group of people years later, and they did some more work on the temple. And, and so this all happened before Nehemiah went back. The temple was rebuilt, but they didn't rebuild the outer walls of the city. So Nehemiah led kind of this third return of people that went back, and their job specifically was to rebuild the wall. They did it in 52 days. It was a pretty amazing story that we'll talk about more in the next week. So that's a little bit of the historical context. So he so he he led the rebuilding of J- Jerusalem's exterior walls. He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was not a priest. He, was not a prof- he didn't have a professional ministry background. It's important to notice that just like 98% of the people listening to the message right now, Nehemiah was not a pastor. He was not a spiritual leader. He was not a priest. He, w- he had a secular government job. This is just this normal, everyday guy that God called and God used to do something significant in history. He worked a secular job as a government employee, and yet God used him to unite a nation to lead Israel's spiritual revival and a great return to worshiping the one true God. He was perhaps the greatest administrator or the greatest administrative organizational mind of the Bible. So here in your notes, let's rocket through these things. The big idea, here's the big idea, is that if you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, you're designed to be a builder. The first step of building something is picturing it. Picturing is all about vision and vocabulary. That's who Nehemiah was. If you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, God wired you with the ability to build things in life. To make something out of your life through his guidance and through his help. But the first step of building something is to picture it. And really the two things, when you're picturing what it is that God wants you to build for your physical body this year, for your spiritual life... For your family, for your finances. The first thing is vision and vocabulary, two V words. When you're picturing something, it's all about vision and vocabulary. Vision paints a picture of what the future could look like. Vision is not a picture of what it is now, it's a picture of what your future could look like. And godly vision, what he wants to give you an eye, it's optimistic. God doesn't often supply us with a vision of our future that's worse than what we have right now. Why would we want that? God's dreams for you and I are for things to be better than what they are right now. That doesn't mean that along the way you've got to go through some stuff. But God's vision for your future, for your tomorrow, for your next year, for two years, for five years, is more optimistic. It's better than what you have right now. So I want to incentivize you getting an idea of what his vision really is for your life. It doesn't have to be rooted in or limited by your current position in life. It's more of an optimistic goal to strive for. The second thing, so you've got vision. You also have vocabulary. Vocabulary becomes the vehicle by which you best describe your vision. It's about choosing the most descriptive, accurate words. If I said, what is the vision for your future this morning? And you hem and you haw, well, it's kind of like it's kind of... That's not really a good vision. How do you know if you're there or not if you can't even describe it? When it comes to picturing your future, it's not about just seeing it in your imagination or seeing it in your spirit. It's then being able to take that picture that God's given you of your future and being able to articulate it clearly with your words. That's the first thing that God did in Nehemiah and through Nehemiah. It was the very first thing that he did in putting all that stuff together. Uh, I... I put a lot of toys together for my son over, over the holiday, and um, we got him this Hot Wheels racetrack that I thought was a great idea. Two and a half hours later, as I'm struggling with all these diagrams and these tiny little pictures, you know, I, it, it was an exercise in patience and it's sometimes frustration for me. But, the, but what helped me was that the instructions were very, very clear. There were 27 steps to putting together this racetrack. Um, but the other thing that was awesome is that they gave you a really clear full color picture of what it was supposed to look like when it was done and i cannot tell you how many times i'm looking back and forth between step 16 and the picture and step 16 in the picture and when i made a mistake i was able to correct it easily because i could compare it against an accurate picture of what it was supposed to be when it was all finished, when it was all said and done, the clearer the picture of the finished product, the more confident I feel in making decisions along the way and the more likely I am to achieve the desired result. That's what I'm saying. If you want to do something significant for God, why don't you start off by taking some time just saying, God, help me picture what it is that I'm trying to do here. What is my family really supposed to look like? What could it look like eight months from now, 12 months from now if you really got involved in the case? What could my finances and my budget look like if you really got involved? I am... You I've got other people. Pastor, I am single. I don't want to be single the rest of my life. Okay, well, if God really got involved, what could your life look like 12 months from now in terms of your romantic life? If it matters to you, it matters to God. God has opinions about these things. But we have to get to a place where we, we, we can envision it, we can picture it, and then we are able to describe it Else, or else, how else do you know what target that you're shooting at? To to have a healthier body, a more satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ, a more prosperous financial situation, more fulfilling relationships, you have to be able to picture what it could look like and then be able to clearly describe it. Two key questions you have to answer in this stage of the building process are these. What does it look like and what words can I use to clearly describe it? If you're trying to get a vision for your physical health this year, you're saying, you know what, this year I'm going to lose X amount of pounds. There's some vision. This year I need to lose... This year, I want to lose 20 pounds, and I can see myself 12 months from now fitting back into this or that or the other thing, or being able to. You have to be able to have words to clearly describe it. We're not making a plan yet. That's next week. Some of us stop dreaming because we start planning too early, and we psych ourselves out from dreaming. Some of you get stuck there because you skip past picturing and you go right to planning. I am a chronic planner. It's very hard for me sometimes. The bigger my wife loves the big picture. Well, if we just change this to this, this, well, when we get a bigger house someday, I'm like, a bigger house someday, we just barely got into this one. (laughs) We got a 30-year mortgage on this thing, and now you're talking about a bigger one, and I'm just immediately, she's like, oh, you're no fun, you can't ever dream. I'm like, dreaming stresses me out. (laughs) I need help in that area. I'm a planner. Dreaming gets tough for planners, because you factor out the dream because you can't see the plan to get there. You start with the picture. Because if God gives you a picture, don't you think he'll give you a plan too? That wasn't in my notes. It just kind of came, I didn't plan that out in my notes. But um, if God gave you the picture, he'll give you a plan too. Sometimes I find when I've got a picture that I can't have a plan for, maybe the picture isn't a God picture might be a great picture but it might not be a god picture god doesn't give us pictures without plans but he gives the picture first very rarely does he give you a plan and then a picture generally He gives you a picture of where you're going so real quickly let me give you three characteristics of god-inspired vision how do i know because guess what you can have your own vision for life there's people who have done great things built amazing things it wasn't necessarily a god vision it was their own vision Because you don't have to be a Christian to make this stuff work this morning. You can have a vision for something, develop a great plan, fight for it and finish it. It might not be God's plan for your life, but it might still work. I don't want to teach you just how to go out and build anything. I want to equip you to be able to hear from God clearly about what it is he has for you and then be able to give you some tools to be able to go get after it. So let me give you three characteristics of God-inspired vision. How do I know this thing I'm imagining is from God and not just a figment of my own extension, my own imagination. Give me three characteristics. Number one, vision must be clear. It must be clear. Crystal clear. When king, however you say his name, talked to Nehemiah, he said, Nehemiah, you look stressed. You look anxious. This is not like you. What's going on? Nehemiah says, if it pleases you, I want to travel a hundred and some odd miles to this direction. I want to rebuild the wall. He had a specific answer. I want to send me to Judah and I want to rebuild the wall. He knew exactly. It was crystal clear. He knew. Now, if you go back and read Nehemiah chapter one, you can figure out how he got there. How did it become so clear? Why was it such a big deal to him? But all I know is that his vision was crystal clear clear he wasn't hemming and hawing about i don't know i'm 37 years old living in my parents basement and i don't really know what i should do with my future i like to draw but i don't that wasn't him he knew exactly what it was that god put on his heart that he was supposed to do and guess what he wasn't intimidated by the fact that it had nothing to do with his current occupation he was a cupbearer. he tasted wine so the king didn't die for a living for crying out loud he was not a stonemason But he knew God spoke to him, and he didn't let it intimidate him. In fact, he prayed about it, the Bible says, for four months before he ever talked to the king about it. He fasted and he prayed, Nehemiah chapter 1 says. When he heard about how bad it was in Jerusalem, he wept. He repented to God on behalf of his people. He said, I'm so sorry we've missed it, but God, you promised that you'd build us back again. And if you need to send somebody, send me. And the Bible says he fasted and he prayed for four months before he ever had a conversation about it. And by that point, the vision was so clear because he had thought about it and prayed about it and thought about it and prayed about it. And the more you think about it, and the more you pray about it, things get more clear. Pastor, my future isn't clear. You haven't prayed about it enough. Well, pastor, I'm just a little unclear on it. Then pray about it. Talk to God and listen to God and talk to God and listen to God. And if it's not clear, then keep talking and keep listening. How did he get to a point of absolute clarity where he could said, I want to go back to Judah. Next week we'll talk about it. He said, not only that, but I need X amount of wood and X amount of lumber. I need two letters of recommendation. I need this many people. And he already had, before he ever had a conversation about it, he and God had talked about all of this. If you're living with a great deal of unrest and lack of clarity in your life, it's because you and God aren't on the same page. Every time there's unrest and no clarity in my life it has been a result of on some level god and i are disconnected i'm chasing after something i shouldn't be chasing after he's trying to lead me in a direction he's blocking a path because he's wise enough to keep me from going down that road and i'm just frustrated by it god and you and i need to get on the same page vision must be clear unclear vision is worthless Clear vision is compelling. Clear vision is specific. It's measurable. It's able to be accomplished. It's easy to communicate to others. The king was so moved by how clear Nehemiah's vision was that you know what he said? He said, What do you need me to do for you? The king. He hears Nehemiah say at one time, You don't understand, when you hear someone with clear vision, it's compelling. When you hear someone talk about, I have a dream to do this, when it's really clear, friend, you just want to do something. I remember when I was interviewing for this job and I was on the fence of whether I wanted to take it or not. I remember sitting down with Pastor George and I asked him, I said, what is your vision for Echo Community Church? This was two and a half years ago. Why are you planting campuses all over Baltimore? Why are you thinking that you know, Trinity Assemblies of God in one location is not enough? I asked him and I was just on the fence about, and here's what he said. He said, we have a vision to reach all of Baltimore one community at a time. And that did something in my heart. Because, you know, I could have sat right where I was in Columbus, Georgia. The pastor had, always told, had already told me, hey, when I retire, this is yours. Church of seven, 800 people would have paid me really well. All the other kinds of things that went along with it. I knew the people, they knew me. But it was a holding pattern. This is where Kendra and I grew up. And I was kind of on the fence about it. And when he said to me, I said, I said, what is your vision? What is the future? He said, we have a vision. It's Trinity Life to reach this city, but we recognize not everybody's going to come to one campus anymore. Times have changed. We need to be in communities all over the city. We want to reach this city one community at a time. I thought, something in my heart just came alive when he said that. And I said, I want to be part of taking a whole city. I'm not, I recognize who I am and who I'm not. I'm not the guy to take a city. I mean, for crying out loud, this is what you get. You know, like I, I am not the guy who's probably going to stand up in front of ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people to take a whole city. But you know what? With God's help, could we go over and make a dent in Perry Hall and in Nottingham and in White Marsh? I'll give my life for that. You know why? Because something came alive when I heard clear vision. But it started in the picturing it phase. Vision must be clear number two vision must be covered this is important wish i had more time on this one today i don't the beautiful thing is we don't have to necessarily finish all these points today i can pick it up next week so we won't go over time today because we're in no hurry we're not in a race to try and rush through the bible i gave you a lot this morning of background information but let's go over this point real quick because this is important vision must be covered now what do you mean by that Let me read you the verse that that, that inspired that point for me. It says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, Nehemiah replied, if it pleases the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, then send me to, and he rolls out the plan. The king said, what is it that you want? And the first thing Nehemiah does is he submits his plan to the king's decision. He didn't barge open the doors and go and say, King, I have served you faithfully and by God, I've been your employee for the last 20 years and I demand that you send me back to... That's not what he said. He said, if it pleases you, you're the king. Ultimately, Nehemiah recognized spiritual authority. He recognized that ultimately at the end of the day, Nehemiah's role was to submit to God and then whoever was next in charge in his life, which was the king. And he said, so if it pleases you, and if you trust that what I'm saying, you know my heart, you know me for 20 years, then send me back to my homeland and let me rebuild the wall. And the king says, what can I do to help? And Yemiah says, actually, I have a list. And rolling, Here, here's all the things I need. But the first thing that he did was he submitted his plan to his leadership covering. Now, ultimately, you, you have to understand, a vision must be covered. So, so who provides your covering? You need to know this. Who in your life are authority figures in your own life that if you're going to do something big like chasing a vision for your life are going to have to be on board with it? Because either they're on board with it or they're going to oppose it, one or the other, and there's nothing more miserable than being forced into relationship professionally or relationally with someone who opposes God's vision for your life. It's miserable. It's miserable. Sometimes you get a choice in it, sometimes you don't. So who provides your covering? Ultimately, God is our primary chief covering. If God can't cover your vision, whatever it is you think in your heart you're supposed to do, I want to go to this university and study this. I want to be wealthy. I want to be a millionaire. I want to build this. I want to tear that down. I want to have 97 kids. I want to... If God can't endorse your vision, you ought to find something else. There's a lot of people who want to do great things. They just don't want to do great things for God. First of all, is the thing you're trying to strive after something that God can fully get behind? I've known people whose mission in life is to go into a church and run the pastor out of the church. They feel like it is their God-given responsibility to run that man or woman out of their position and and they would do it with a clear conscience. If that's not God's plan, you ought to find another one. There are different times and seasons in life where we get personal ambition in our life. And before you start running down that trail, it might be good for you to stop and say, is this really God's vision for my life or is this my own personal vision? How many of you have already made New Year's resolutions this year? Okay. Did you prayerfully consider them before you wrote them down? Might be a lot of good ideas, but guess what? If they're not God's ideas, you're going to be trying to fill these on your own. Have you stopped and prayerfully said, these are the things I think I want to go after this year. Now, God, I want to lift these up to you. And God, are these, are these things that you can endorse and get behind? Or better yet, God, before I write them down, I'm going to bathe this whole exercise in prayer. God, will you just inspire my imagination right now? What are the things that you imagine for me for this year? What are the things you imagine for my family, for my finances, for my faith, for my job, for my occupation? God, and let him just start. Well, I've never talked to God that way. Well, try it. How do you think you ever learn to do this stuff if you don't practice? Give God an opportunity. Who provides my covering? God does. Before you move any farther ahead with your vision, you should first submit it to God. Make sure it's covered. Submit your vision to God for his approval, making sure your motives and desired arc- outcomes are consistent with what he wants for you. Other covering you might need to seek out. If you've got a real strong, compelling vision for your life, there's other types of covering you might have to look at. You have vocational covering which is your boss or your employer, your direct report. We have civil, civil and governmental uh, uh, covering like laws and local authorities. Like if you feel like it's a great vision of your heart but it's completely illegal, I would slow you down right there. I have this great idea to, oh, man, I won't use that example, but um, <laughs> to grow things in my backyard and sell them for a profit. No, that's not <laughs> might not be God's idea. Well, God wants me to be wealthy and to, to uh, not that way, <laughs> you don't, um, you have relational covering, now this, who's the head of your household, now you might be a single parent, you might say, hey, it's just me, you might be completely single, and you don't have a husband, or a wife, or anything else, and you might be the head of your household, or you might be in a marriage relationship, where the man is the head of your household, and if you and he aren't on the same page, you're gonna have you're gonna have contention there and that limits things if you're if you're a child or you're living at home there's all who are the relational leaders in your life and then finally who are the who are the spiritual covering the, the head of the house you live in or your pastor if there's something big and huge in your heart that god's challenging you to do you might need to consider hey i might need to talk to my boss about this because it might mean some shifting here and get my boss's blessing or it might be hey you know, I I might need to talk to my husband or this is something I might need to talk to my children about, not because I need their blessing, but I need them on board. Or You need to figure out what layers of people you need to get on the page. Now, some of you might say, I don't have anybody. You know, this doesn't affect my job. This doesn't affect my family. This is just for me personally. Then absolutely make sure that God is on board with this. And then the question I always get is, what if what I feel, as I'm picturing this, What if I can't get my vision covered by the appropriate leadership in my life? What if they're just not on board with me? We have three options. You can ignore the leader and go after it anyway. You can set that vision aside and continue to serve or follow your leaders and trust in their judgment. Or you can align yourself with different leadership. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've had people come to me and get very angry with me because of decisions that I make as a leader of this church happens. It just happens. It's not one of the things I like about ministry, but it's there, you know, because ultimately, I think, I think in everybody's heart, everybody knows how to do my job. Everybody knows how easy this is. And everybody just has, oh, it's just a quick answer. I don't think that's unique to ministry. Any of you who work in a job where you ever have to deal with outsiders' opinions, they think they can solve all your problems because they just know it. Well, Here's how I'd fix the government. Here's how I'd fix the police force. Here's how I'd fix this. Here's how I'd fi- fix Valley Forge. You know, here's how I'd fix this. That's not really how it works. Here's how I fix T. Fix T. row Price. Here's how fi- That's not really how it works. If you're on the outside, you have no idea what's going on on the inside. Doesn't it irritate you when people just come along like the good idea fairy comes along? Well, you know what your problem is? If you just did A, B, and C, everybody be happy. And you're thinking, you have no clue. Sometimes we run into that. You run into everybody. At the end of the day, if you really want to have a clear vision for what you do, sometimes there just comes a point where not everybody can be right. We're not all going to pour our paint in one bucket and mix it all together and say this is the color of who we are. Ultimately, someone has to lead, and God holds that person more responsible than you. At the end of the day, God will not hold a single one of you responsible for the leadership of Echo Church. I promise you there's not a person on the face of the earth who prays more, thinks more, has more riding on Echo than I do in my family. God's asked more out of me. If Echo dissolves tomorrow, you all can go find another church, go back to your jobs. It's different for me. I have more riding on this than you do. But that doesn't intimidate me. It keeps me sober and it keeps me serious and it keeps me humble because I recognize, I recognize how much I need God's influence and his leadership and what's going on here. And sometimes you just run into a situation where not everybody's gonna get on the same page. You're gonna have 10 ideas and someone's, we gotta go with somebody's and nine people are gonna be disappointed. Sometimes I've watched God lead people out of one church into another church simply because they had a disagreement about the way that things were going and a decision had to be made and they couldn't live with it. Sometimes maybe that's what God's showing you. If you have a different vision than your leader does, one of the possibilities might be that might be a way for God to show you. It might be time to make some kind of a transition. Now, it's a little easier when it comes to church or vocation. When it's a disagreement between husband and wife and you have two different visions, I'm not just suggesting, hey, you know what? If you just can't get on the same page about what refrigerated by, just divorce and figure it out on the next one. There has to be some measure of maturity here. The reality of the matter is, if you're going to run with a vision, make sure you get it covered. Get it covered by God. Make sure that it's something that, that, that He's birthing in your heart, that He can bring His blessing upon. Make sure that the key relationships and those, those situations in life are you're under someone else's leadership or someone else's authority. Make sure that if it applies to them, that they can get on board with it. It's just going to make it easier for you moving down the road. And finally, vision must be better. Number three, vision must be better. Just because it's a good picture doesn't mean it's a God picture. We get all these great ideas about how good and wonderful things could be. And if I had a million dollars, I would, and this and that. Just because it's just because it's it's better doesn't necessarily mean it's a God picture. But I will tell you this. One of the things I see from the story is vision. Vision should be better. How do you know if it's a God vision for your life? Is it better than what you have now? The city where my ancestors We read in Nehemiah, the city where my ancestors are buried in is is, is in ruins. And the gates have been destroyed by fire. So he says, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Here's what he's saying. The city is broken down. The gates are broken down. The walls are broken down. Send me back so that I can make it better. Send it back so that we can build it back. We don't want it to be in decay. Nehemiah had a vision to repair and to make israel's wall better than it was in its current state that's what inspired him that's what drove him that's what gave him the courage to talk to the king about it that's what gave him the ability to take a huge risk by tackling something he had never done before to the best of our knowledge the picture god has for you is better than the picture you see today the dream god has for your family for your finances for your education for your health for your walk with him spiritually it's what god sees for you is better than what you see today even if today is great it's better than what you have right now. I would encourage you to exchange your vision for God's. I would encourage you to ask God to help, help you to see through his eyes and see the landscape the way he sees things could be. It's better than the picture you see today. God's vision moves us forward. Nehemiah's picture of Jerusalem was to make it better, not worse. If your vision is not better, then it is destructive destructive is the enemy's agenda not god's what happens is the enemy gets you to look at your future and you see it as hopeless and you see it as worse than it is today and it starts a never ending cycle of depression and hopelessness and you watch the people who are struggling most in life many of them have no positive vision for their future they have nothing to dream for anymore They've stopped believing that things could get better. They've decided it will never be, life will never be better than what it is right now. And it starts you on a cycle of hopelessness and depression and rebellion and destruction and even self-destruction. The people that you run into in life that are so down in the dumps and you might be that person, it's because you've lost all hope that anything could be better than what it is right now. You've decided that my future will be no better than what it is today. That's not God speaking to you. That's what the enemy wants you to buy into. He wants you to look at your life and look at your future and say, it will never get any better. Because once you accept that into your heart, you start on a spiral of self-destruction and distancing yourself from God. And if that's what's in your heart this morning, I want to speak truth to you in the name of Jesus Christ. It can be better. It can be better. You are not doomed to having to spiral down to something that's not, but it's going to take you getting very honest and inviting Jesus Christ into the center of your life once again and allowing him to give you his perspective rather than your own. Because when God comes in, he lifts us up. His vision that he gave, God's vision that he gave to Nehemiah was not to go back and see the nation destroyed and going around with all these, it was to rebuild a wall. It was for a nation that could return to God and be great. Once again, my, my question to you this morning is, are you holding on to any hope that life could be better than what it is right now for you? If God really got a hold of things, if you really did things God's way, Nehemiah's picture of Jerusalem was to make it better, not worse. It was to make it better. Destructive is the enemy's agenda, not God. So, if you're wondering if this vision you have for yourself for the next six months, the next twelve months, for yourself, for your family, for your finances, for your career, for your spiritual life, if you're wondering if it's from God or not, test it with those three. Test it with those three characteristics that we gave you this morning. Is it clear in your heart? Can it be covered? Is it a, by covered? Is it something that? That, that God himself and the people in your life that, that you might be accountable to, can they cover it? Can they get on board with it? And if not, is it something that you're that, co- sometimes those things become deal breakers and you say, you know what, I have to, I might have to align myself with some different people because I'm convinced this is from God, but I got to get it aligned with people that can cover me in that. And then finally, is it better than what, is it better than what you see in front of you right now? So what is it that God through his Holy Spirit is giving you a vision for this morning? For your physical health, for your finances, for your relationships, for your marriage? spiritually for your career? With God's leadership and with your willingness to trust Him and work hard, what could this look like 12 months from now? And will you pray every day for the next 21 days for God to clarify your vision and help you clearly describe it? Let's pray together this morning as we close our service. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you recognize today, you know, I have just been spinning my tires. I've got all these Renegade thoughts and things running through my mind, but it's a new year and I want to start things off right. There is no better foundation you can lay than inviting Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Before you think about planning your future, the most important decision you can ever make is who you're going to align yourself with spiritually. And if you're here today and you need to make a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want Him to forgive you of your sins. You want to have a one on one relationship with God. You want to invite His Spirit to come and live inside of you and give you direct connectivity to God through His Spirit living in you, through His Spirit <coughs> accessible through your thoughts, to be able to feel His feelings, to be able to have access to God in terms of your ability to communicate with Him and hear from Him. It all begins at salvation. And if that's you this morning, it's just simple. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to believe that God is, that he exists, that has some named Jesus who came and died for your sins in your place, but who lives today, and you have to confess those things to God and admit that you need Him and invite Him to come inside of you. It's a simple prayer we prayed earlier in the service, but if that's you today, I want to encourage you right in your seat right now, if you're far from God or if you're not in relationship with Him, this is the prayer that you pray that starts everything. You just say, dear Jesus, I am a sinner, I believe you exist, and I need you to be in control of my life. So I submit myself to you. I admit that I have sinned and lived life my own way. But I invite you to please forgive me for my sins. Come into my heart. Take up residence inside of me. And I submit myself to you. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. And from this moment forward, I commit my life to living your way. And I look forward to experiencing all the plans that you have for me as I picture my new life in you. And I'm going to pray over our house this morning. We're going to close right here today. After this prayer, I'll dismiss you. Heavenly Father, help us to picture and dream big dreams for you. Things that matter in all of eternity, that they would be clear, that they would be easy to understand, that they would communicate a sense of of value and energy and excitement to each and every one of us. For those of us that have given up on our dreams, Lord, I pray that you'd bring those back into our heart again and just encourage us to get after it once again. Thank you for stories of people that you did this in like Nehemiah who took some time, who took months and months and months, but who really sat down and let his heart be, be open to the possibility of what you might have for his future. So God, I just pray this morning that to each and every one of us, you either remind us and encourage us that we're on the right track, you bring a word of correction to us and help us dream new dreams that are your dreams. We look forward next Sunday to starting 21 days of intensive prayer and fasting. And I pray that over these next three weeks, God would give us more opportunity to share your good news with more people than ever before. In your precious name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.